Thanks for listening to the Q&A podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Welcome back to uh, the Q&A podcast. Uh, I'm Matt Decent, and I'm here with the famous Matt Karsh. That's my rendition of uh, the Star Wars theme song for episode, would it be six? <laughs> this no, Return no, of the Mads. No, it's this is... Matt Karsh. I'm sorry. Here. No. Do we need to start over already? No, it, no, we're not starting over. This is episode eight. Oh. Oh my gosh. Do you listen to the Q&A podcast? <laughs> so episode eight would make this the last podcast. <laughs> uh, no, actually, it's the first podcast in a long time. Uh, it's been a couple months, actually, since we've recorded a podcast. We were doing these weekly, uh, and then the holidays hit, life hit. I've, life- I've actually been standing in a line waiting at the Spokane Courthouse <laughs> to get my fingerprints done since we last recorded. Two months ago. Yeah. Yeah. But honestly, a lot of life has happened. Um, we had the holidays, obviously, Thanksgiving, Christmas. Uh, my wife gave birth to our third child mm. uh, a couple weeks ago. So we were kind of uh, been out for a few weeks for that. Uh, Karsh, you've got some news to share. We're moving to Ecuador. You're moving to Ecuador. Yeah. Tell us how that came about. Uh, we were in Atlanta in December and we interviewed with a bunch of schools in different countries in Central and South America. Got some job officer, job officers, job offers. I was at the cap courthouse earlier, which is why that's mm, on my mind. Yeah. Uh, got some job offers and paid and uh, decided to move to Guayaquil, Ecuador. Wow. So you and your wife are moving in a, in a few months here. Yes. Abandoning us for warmer climate. You'll be, yes. t- you'll be teaching. Yes. Teaching second grade. Yes. At an international school. At an international school. In, in Ecuador. Yep. Awesome. So we've got a, a whole new life direction, a new country to live in, a new baby that's been born. Uh, but we're back. It's Return of the Mats. We are ready to answer some questions for the Q&A podcast. Uh, and I think what we'll do, we haven't really recorded much in December or January, but I think we'll just try and get back into a regular rhythm for the next four or five weeks and uh, hopefully answer the rest of the questions that have been texted in. And then uh, if the questions keep coming, we'll keep recording. Uh, but we've got a couple questions that we want to answer today. Uh, we've got we got multiple questions on slavery and servanthood in the Bible, uh, and in particular in the Old Testament law. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, before we do, we got a question about uh, the Tower of Babel. Uh, so I think we'll start with the Tower of Babel, answer that as best we can, and then jump into uh, actually the bigger, stickier topic, which is slavery and servanthood yeah, uh, in the Old Testament law. Time. Yeah. So why don't we jump right in? Karsh, can you read us the question about uh, the Tower of Babel? Or, I, or I can read it. I can read it. Okay. When God saw that all mankind was working with one goal, they could accomplish anything. This is the word of the, the question. Why was this bad? Why did he decide they needed to be stopped? Or Our guess is that the goals of man had already strayed so far from his due to separation from him and mankind could have forever derailed the possibility of the return of paradise. But it would be nice to hear a more educated explanation. So the 
the question is seemingly referencing Genesis 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel and why did God why did God break it up? It seemed like people right. were just building along a big tower. Why was that so bad? Right. Um, so we should start with a little context and yeah. then um, kind of go from there. So you, you open the Bible, you get creation, God's intent for humanity, flourishing in God's presence, human beings rebel against God. That's chapter three. So from chapters three to the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, you just trace this downward spiral that humanity is going through. It just gets worse and worse and worse. There's um, at one point God basically decides to hit the reset button on humanity. He floods the earth, saves Noah and his family and starts over. And then um, pretty quickly you realize, oh, actually Noah and his family are still sinful and now they're multiplying out across the earth. And then you get the story about the Tower of Babel. Uh, and we talked about it recently on a Sunday, so we don't have to spend too much time on it, I don't think. But you, this is this is after the flood, and your hope is that humanity is better and less rebellious. And then you get the story about all of humanity uniting in one place for one purpose, which is building this tower. Um, and the question he's asking is, or she is asking is, or they, it's, or they, it's worded as a we. Oh, the, the question that these people are asking is why was it bad that humanity is working uh, together for one goal? That actually um, seems like it'd be really nice in today's right, world. Right, right, right. Because you, you look out in today's world and it's worth pointing out that how nationalistic the world is. And, and America or is Or even included. just divided in general. Yeah, so we have all sorts of divisions uh, across continents or across races or across national boundaries or even within nations, there's all this division. And so in our minds, uh, in today's climate, you think, well, if we could get everyone in America even working toward the same goal, that would be amazing, let alone like Mexico and Canada and Ecuador. And, you know, if everyone in the world decided to work together for the same goal, wouldn't that be beautiful? Uh, and the the... It's easy to say, yes, that would be beautiful. But the catch is, what are they working toward? Mm -hmm. And that's where the, 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 the story turns on the Tower of Babel. The fact that they're working in unity is not a bad thing. Right. Uh, in fact, we will, all who follow Jesus are not only in this life unified under Christ and in Christ, but we get this image of the age to come in which people will come from every tribe, tongue, and nation and be united together under Jesus. And so being united under Jesus' kingship is a beautiful thing that God wants for humanity. But in the Tower of Babel, they're actually united in rebellion. And it's not crystal clear when you read through the text. They're just building a tower and you're, you think to yourself, well, what's wrong with building a tower? That doesn't seem like a big deal. But really, uh, the tower itself and the city of Babel becomes this sort of imagery of uh, humanity being united in rebellion against God. Uh, God says, hey, go scatter over the face of the earth and glorify me. And they say, hey, let's forget that entirely. Let's gather in one place and make a name for ourselves. Well, that's, that's actually the, I mean, that's the key. So let's read it real quick. So, you know, you get this the storyline where God tells Adam and Eve, Fill the earth, subdue it. Fill, spread out, subdue it. And they're supposed to rule and reign in God's name. That command gets re-upped after the flood to Noah and his family. So it's this it's this thread that then starts. 
And by the time you get to Genesis 11, it says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar when they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the whole face of the earth. Literally, their justification for what they're doing is to do the exact opposite of what God has commanded them to do. Right. And that is foundational to understanding the whole story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what we pointed out on uh, Sunday, a couple of Sundays ago when we talked about it, was just the thread in the early parts of Genesis of the contrast between self-sufficiency and God-sufficiency, where God says to Adam and Eve, basically, hey, trust me. Let me define good and evil. Trust me. Don't eat from that tree. Be in this in this relationship with me. And they kind of go the way, Adam and Eve go the way of self-sufficiency uh, at the urging of the serpent, of course. But then that kind of characterizes humanity through those early chapters. They just keep doing their own thing. They keep, they keep going for autonomy and selfishness and pride. And the biblical authors want to point out that that's actually really dangerous. Um, and it's ironic that in the modern day, we once again think that all of those things are, are these like valiant, beautiful thing. We, we want autonomy. We're more or less selfish. We think pride is a good thing. Um, we love self-sufficiency and that was the whole topic of that Sunday. So I'm not going to rehash the whole thing, but you see self-sufficiency versus God sufficiency. Well, the tower is self-sufficiency all over again. And in the very next chapter, you hit chapter 12 and you have this guy, Abraham, who's willing to throw away everything he has to be um, God reliant instead of uh, self-reliant or self-sufficient. And so I think there's these threads that actually run all through the scriptures of, will you be a person of faith who trusts in God or will you be sort of the prideful, autonomous, self-sufficient person that really falls more in line with modern humanism of, hey, we human beings are enough. If we need to be saved, we can save ourselves. We are self-sufficient. Um, and and all of that, and so I think that's the what what we see lurking behind the words of the story of the Tower of Babel, and the reason that God scattered them. Unity for in and of itself is not wrong, but unity in self sufficiency, in defiance of God, uh, actually becomes dangerous not for God, but actually for human beings. And so it's in God's mercy that He scatters them, yeah. confuses their language, uh, and we end up much better off than we otherwise would be. So uh, any final thoughts, Karsh, about the Tower of Babel? No, I'm trying to think back to um, Sunday teaching, but I think that for me, understanding what's going on there, because it's a confusing story. For me, it was a really confusing story for a long time because I missed the the embedded language that we have to understand because you got to read Genesis as a full coherent coherent story. story. And... It's, it's just very blatant and obvious. If you pick apart the words, they say, we want to make a name for ourselves. That's literally the antithesis of what humanity should be doing. That's not what's good for us. That's not a part of our nature. They want to gather themselves in a city and then build a tower to reach to God. Right. Well, that's the antithesis of what it means to be human. So um, I think that that helps the makes the story make sense in my mind right. and hopefully answers that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to zoom out and look at the common threads. And there's even some really interesting, the Tower of Babel and later Babylon actually become these forms or types 
for um, kind of the evil in the world. And oh my gosh, hallelujah, Pentecost is the flipping of Babel. Ooh. So, right. I don't know why we, uh, we can go down that the, the rabbit trail there, but the, the point is that in Babel... The Holy Spirit comes in Pentecost. Right, so in Babel, humanity comes together united to do something that's the antithesis of their nature. God scatters them in his mercy, confuses their language, which is how cultures and languages develop and through the narrative of Genesis. Well, by the time that you get to Acts and you get the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit... What happens at Pentecost? Well, all these people who have different languages and cultures, they're in one place. And because of the gift of the Spirit, they, they're able to understand one another and they're united in the pouring out of the Spirit. They're united in this, this new thing called the church. And it's this beautiful reversal of what happened in Genesis 11. God is making all things new and he's starting right there in Acts. Wow. A new unity yeah. calling all peoples back to himself. Yeah. That's good stuff. Okay, well, if we didn't answer that adequately, then you'll have to ask somebody else. That's all we got. Um, I think we'll move on because we have a bigger topic uh, to cover in this episode, and that is slavery and servanthood in the Old Testament law. And so if you're tracking with us through reading the Bible in a year, by now, I think according to the Bible Project app, we're in the book of Isaiah or something. Uh, Can I make a confession? What do you want to say? I'm still in Samuel. Oh my God. Well, that's even better. You're even closer to the proximity of these questions. Samuel, huh? Yeah. Oh. I love Samuel. Or did you read it twice? Or what? No, <laughs> no okay. but I do love it. Oh, I was going to. I love it. Okay. The stories are just so, they're just so There's normal. There's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that's better. When you're, when you're kind of forced to go back and read it, you read stuff and you're like, whoa, it's like better than I, I yeah. thought. Anyhow. So you're, we're reading through the Old Testament as a church. Uh, eventually, we'll read the whole Bible. This I might make it. I don't know. Yeah, most of us will. Karsh will probably be in Second Samuel by the end of the. Uh, but when you're reading through the law, uh, that is the law of Moses in in the Old Testament. Not your son Moses, but not my son Moses. No. Um, gosh darn it, Karsh! I'm trying to get to a point. When you're reading through the law, you re- you're reading through, and half the stuff in there makes a ton of sense. Like, oh yeah, if you like kill a guy's donkey, you should pay that guy for that donkey, or give him a new donkey, or whatever. Uh, and you're like, oh, that's really sensible. And then you get to other laws where it's like, hey, here's what you should do with your slaves. Here's what you should do with your servants. And it, it and so we got a couple questions about that. Do I have the questions in front of me, or did I? If you didn't send them to me. Oh no. They're somewhere. Yes. Uh, we got a couple questions, but it was the questions were along the lines of, hey, what's what's the deal with slavery in the Old Testament law? I actually law? think that's word for word what someone else. What's Is the it? deal with slavery in the Old Testament? <laughs> why was slavery sanctioned in the Old Testament law? And uh, why are there laws about Hebrew servants in Exodus 21? Mm. Why doesn't God outlaw servants? Uh, and these are great questions. I think there was a couple others along the same lines, but... Why why was slavery sanctioned in the Old Testament law? And why don't you just outlaw servants? Why don't you just outlaw slaves? Uh, and so that's kind of what we'll wrestle with for uh, the, the minutes that we have left in this podcast. But the first thing that I'll say, well, the very first thing I'll say is that those are really good questions. Yeah. Um, and I think that one of the reasons we wanted to create this space is to ask those types of questions that sometimes we don't have uh, a, a proper space to ask those questions. And so when you're reading through the Old Testament, 
I think one of the p- points that you make, Karshi, is that we we shouldn't. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to say like, I don't get this, or this like this doesn't seem like Jesus to me, or why? Like why would why would God do that? And so I think as you read through the Old Testament, there's going to be a lot of stuff, uh, especially for us thousands of years removed, that's mm-hmm. kind of shocking. Where you just say like. And, and so what we don't want to do in answering this is um, somehow try to justify. Yeah, some, we don't have some to defend the, it. Right. Uh, and sometimes we feel that way as Christians that, oh, my gosh, there's this thing in the Bible and it's a, it's a stumbling block for the culture, let alone pe- people within the church. And so I have to explain this away. I have to, like, make this OK uh, or somehow, like, excuse it mm-hmm. uh, when in reality, I think there's a better route to take. But so that's the first disclaimer. Uh, but the second disclaimer is that when it comes to the topic of slavery and servanthood, we have to recognize that that we're Americans. And I that sounds kind of silly just to say that, um, but we're Americans. And so uh, hopefully most of us, when we were in schools and growing up, kind of had uh, th- this clear picture given to us of the brutality of American slavery. And so, and I don't know what grade they start teaching it, but pretty young, you start getting these like vivid pictures of um, this grotesque thing that was the African-American slave trade uh, in America and and, uh, mostly in the Southern United States. And so as Americans, the second we hear the word slave or slavery, we have this entire lens through which we're viewing it. We have all of these images that rush to mind. Uh, and it's of um, just the, the savage nature of what uh, chattel slavery looked like in, in the southern United States. And so and it's it's the beating and the rape and the murder and the, you know, all of it. Treating treating human beings as if they're not human beings, but property and to be used, abused and thrown away. Totally. Yeah. And, and so that's the first thing we have to recognize is that's what we think of when we hear slavery. And so the first question we kind of have to ask ourselves is. What, what does the Bible mean when it said slavery? Is that what slavery looked like um, in, uh, in, in uh, the Old, Old Testament time in, in ancient Israel? And so that's, that's one question we have to answer. What did slavery look like back then? Uh, and another question we're going to have to wrestle with at some point is what's the purpose of the law? Because really what we're, what we're struck by is that that, that was codified in the law. Um, and so we should we should wrestle a little bit with what the purpose of the law yeah. was. Why did God give that law to begin with? So I don't know where where you want to start. Well, both of those questions are good. So let's just let's just start and see where our conversation leads. Okay. So um, why don't we start with the law? The purpose of the law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're reading through. You've got Abraham in chapter twelve. I don't know if I was prepared for that. Well, it's just we don't have to like do the entire unpack the entire thing. But you've got Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham. Hey, through you and your descendants, I'm going to bless the entire earth. Um, those descendants end up growing and growing and growing into a nation uh, that is enslaved in Egypt. They spend 400 years in slavery, and then God frees them and brings them out to Mount Sinai uh, with Moses, and they form uh, another covenant there. And so when we're reading the Old Testament law, what we're talking about is the law of Moses um, it, that's given as a part of this covenant with these freed slaves who are on their way 
to enter the promised land. And so the question is, well, what's the purpose of the law? Because if you assume that the law, because what we do is we look at the Ten Commandments and we say, well, clearly this is God's heart. That's what God wants us to do. That's what God wants us to do. Even in, in 2019, that's what God wants us to do. So... In, in our thinking, we think, well, surely everything else must fall into the same category. Like this must be like the best laws that God could come up with um, that, that are meant for all human beings for all time. Yeah. And, and if we slip into that way of thinking, then I'm so we're... Like, oh, okay, okay, you go, you go. Okay, because the question of what is the purpose of the law is, is you're right, it's fundamental. So we can't misunderstand it to think that all of Mosaic code, all of Mosaic law is... is this is the ideal situation for everyone to live by. That's not the purpose of the law. On In one layer, we get a really clear statement from Paul as to the purpose of the law. It happens in Galatians 3. And Paul says, why then was the law given at all? He's having this rhetorical conversation. He says, it was added because of transgressions until the seed, that's Jesus, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. That's Moses. Then you get down to 24, verse 24, really important verse and really important to understand what's the purpose of the law. Uh, so the law was our guardian or tutor or mentor. It's a it's a word that really, um, it's almost like a babysitter. So the, the law was our guardian or tutor until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. There's a purpose to the law but it's not what we readily think of. The purpose of the law is to teach and is added because of people's wicked hearts. And if you read through the story of the nation of Israel, it's the, you, you have to understand what happens in leading up to the giving of Mosaic Code. They're, in, they're brought out of, they are brought out of slavery in Egypt. They go into the desert and their interactions with God are... I'll say less than uh, desirable for them um, was that they get to like day three and like, ah, it's better if we were just still in Egypt. Uh, and th- over the course of time, because of transgressions is the way Paul explains it in Galatians three, the law was added. The, the law is meant us to teach us something. It's meant to teach us something. And it's also meant to govern a, a group of people who are prone towards Transgressions. Yes. So you've got this group of rowdy former slaves in the desert. God's trying to form them into one kind of coherent nation. And and they're given a babysitter in a sense. Yeah. They said, hey, this law is going to guide, teach, and convict you. It's going to be a babysitter until until Christ comes. Um, it, it's, it's meant for a certain time, place, and people. Yes. And... The other layer that I'll add, because there's so much we could say about the law and we have to keep moving. But the other layer that I'll add is that when you zoom out again and look at the big picture of the of the story of the Bible, you've got Abraham. God says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And and Israel is a part of that picture that that's those are Abraham's direct descendants. And so when Israel is kind of being commissioned as a nation, God says, my, the the, per, the reason you exist is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I'm, I'm calling you out of all the nations to love me, to serve me, to glorify me once more in the world. And if you follow the laws that I'm giving you, 
then I will be glorified. And then all the nations around you, all these other nations in the world, their ears are going to perk up. They're going to see what you're doing and they're going to be drawn, drawn to me. They're going to learn something about me and my character because of who you are and because of the difference between you, Israel, and the nations around you. Yeah. And so not only is the law meant for a certain time, place, and people, but one of the things it's meant to do is actually create a contrast between Israel and the nations around her that would, gl- and the contrast is what's going to glorify God. And so if we really want to understand the ways in which this law was these laws uh, specifically about slavery and servanthood were going to glorify god it actually helps to go back in history and figure out well how did the babylonians treat their slaves how did the egyptians treat their slaves how did the assyrians treat theirs like what was different about what israel was doing how would the difference kind of point back to god and glorify him so you're kind of playing this game of compare and contrast uh, and and figuring out what the difference is. And I think if we are too lazy to do that, or if we slip into thinking that, hey, this is the these are the best laws that God could possibly come up with that were to govern humanity for all time, we're gonna miss the point. Right. Well, yeah, I think that's a great example. So one example that we'll go through briefly is when we read one example of something that's how much time we spend together is that I can see where your mind is going. Yes. <laughs> so you threw me off there. Yeah. So one example from the Old Testament law is that in the law, it says, God says to his people, hey, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And when we read that thousands of years removed in our time, place and culture, we say, well, that's a little barbaric. And isn't God encouraging revenge? When, when, when I read that, what I essentially read it to mean is, Somebody hurts my eye. Maybe it was intentional. Maybe it was accidental. But God wants me to get up out of the hospital bed and go and take their eye. Like, right. like, don't forgive them. Don't sit in your apathy. Like, get out there and make sure justice is done. Take their eye. Make sure that they feel the pain too. That's just kind of how I interpret the, the, that law. In reality, in their time, place, and culture, that was a restraint on evil. So because what the human nature is to exaggerate our revenge, it says if you were back in that time, place and culture and somebody took your eye, you would take their head. Like, and, and then you know what they would, they would gather their tribe and they'd come back and say, Hey, you took my friend's head. We're going to wipe out your family. And then they'd rally everybody and go back and say, Hey, you took, you wiped out that family. We're going to wipe out your tribe. And it would turn into this and it would blow up out of proportion. And we still do that as human beings. Uh, but God says, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Restrain that evil. Like you don't need to do or take anything more from them than they took for you. If they take your donkey, don't kill them. Like just ask for another donkey to replace the one that was lost. And so if we don't see these laws in their proper context, then we won't see them as being these sort of like progressive, beautiful, challenging things that God uh, was giving to people. Well, we're actually looking at them from the other side of history and saying, well, isn't that regressive? Right. Okay. So let's just talk about what the Old Testament does have to say about slavery or servanthood and that sort of thing. 
You ready for that? Yeah, yeah. Let's okay. do. Uh, let's just highlight some of the things. So God's speaking to a specific group of people in a specific time and place about slavery, um, which I'm going to argue is just part of the culture. It's just part of that time and place. It's going to exist. And so God's, but God's going to speak into that situation in a way that I think and puts is, restraints on. It. He's going to put restraints on it, and He's going to speak into it in a way that's redemptive. And He's going to call Israel to treat their slaves and servants in a way that no one else in the ancient Near East is treating their slaves and servants. So right. let's let's go ahead and just read the law. Right. And so there's there's a crucial, uh, the, again to kind of maybe overmake the point is in an ideal world, slavery wouldn't be an option. It wouldn't be a necessity. Um, but God does seem to allow it, but he puts restraints on it. And so some mm-hmm. of the things that um, he restrains, uh, it's important to think about the different types of slavery too. So you have Hebrew people, people within the the tribe of, of Israel. So Israel, J- Jacob's descendants, Israel's descendants, who end up for one reason or another ending up uh, poor. And in order to survive, they sell themselves to their neighbor or to a family member. That's one type of slavery. And so you've got Hebrew slaves. There's Hebrew slaves and there's also a category of foreign slaves or anyone else. And that, that, even just that helpful and noticing that can help us read the, the Old Testament passages a whole lot better. And again, remember that these are laws given to people who were slaves themselves, which God reminds uh, them in Deuteronomy 24, 8. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. The That kind of refrain, you were slaves in Egypt, gets gets brought up time and again. Don't forget you were slaves. Don't forget you were slaves. Don't forget you were slaves. Right. And here's how you should treat Either a foreigner who sells themselves or is sold into slavery mm-hmm. or sells themselves into slavery, or here's this other set of rules for how you should treat your brother and your fellow Hebrew who sells himself into servanthood. So, and part of the passages I want to read from Exodus 21 govern uh, the treatment of slaves. And so, again, it's important to remember in in American understanding of chattel slavery, where people were property, that actually is very different from the way that slaves are understood in Old Testament law. So in Exodus 21, you get this picture that if either a free person or a slave is injured, their care must be provided to the victim. Either way, whether they're slave or free. Um, Slaves have actually rights. So slaves have legal rights in ways that wouldn't have been the case in other cultures. And so God actually encodes those things throughout the law in Exodus 21. So like you can't just kill a slave. You can't just kill a slave. You can't take their eye. You can't put them, uh, you can't treat them in a way that um, they'll they'll be um, like permanently disabled. So if you kill a slave master gets punished. Yes. If you seriously injure a slave, that slave is now free. They're actually free. So Exodus 21, 26, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. So if you permanently disable the slave, they're not your property and you don't get to do just whatever you want to them. They're actually free now because you've been a terrible master. And, and that is... 
we, we can't even comprehend how, how different that would have been from the normal way that another ancient Near Eastern culture would have treated slaves or even how Americans treated slaves themselves. Okay, so there's restraints on evil done towards slaves yep. to ensure that their lives are protected, to ensure that they're not injured, to ensure that they go free if they are injured. Uh, what other things were encoded in law that would have encouraged masters uh, to be kind toward their slaves? Um, are you thinking of a specific passage? Because I was going to start talking about... Uh, about servants? Yeah. Well, like Jubilee and freedom after six years and that sort of thing. But are you thinking about... Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, all of that stuff. You think about like the Sabbath when God gives his people... Yeah. The, oh, yeah. That's the, command, the command to, slap, the, to Sabbath. So, so, yeah, the command to Sabbath is for everyone. Free, slave, hired, foreigner, everyone. Exodus 20. So remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or female servant. Just goes on and on. Right. This in, in Exodus 23 actually says, so that they may be refreshed. Yes. Okay, so just already, we just read three laws, but imagine a world in which people are sometimes even like selling themselves into slavery or servanthood, but they have rights. You can't kill them. You can't injure them in any major way. And they are to rest and be refreshed. Like you are actually commanded to look out for their refreshment. Yeah. Uh, the other things just that would be radical. Uh, if, if a Hebrew slave, so like sells themselves into your service because of poverty or maybe their field was ruined, they, they can't survive. It, there's a time limit on it. They serve for six years and in the seventh year they go free. You have to let them free. You have to let them free. And there's also, so you have this rhythm every seven years, but then you also have this jubilee rhythm where people who are sold into slavery are also let go at the the 49th or 50th year, kind of depending on how you count. But mm-hmm. there's there's two opportunities. So, so when someone goes into slavery, specifically a Hebrew slave, it's not a lifelong thing. It's a it's a periodic thing. It's a temporary kind of indentured servitude right. sort, of, sort of thing. Right. So for the Hebrews, um, it would have been more like uh, maybe what you'd see in kind of like medieval, like feudal. Yeah, kind more of... more akin to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another key thing that is embedded in the law: if a slave runs away yes. the slave has an oppressive master that's deuteronomy 23 yes yeah. yeah yeah deuteronomy 23 if a slave has an oppressive master and runs away and takes refuge with you do not hand them back over to their master okay so imagine that you're being mistreated by your master you run away everybody else in the community is actually commanded to protect you yeah and so this is like this is like underground railroad, like on steroids or something. Like everybody has to look out. You do not hand them back over to an oppressive master. You you help them. You hide them. You care for them. Uh, and so I think there's a big difference. You so you you can't be killed if you're seriously injured. You're free. You have a Sabbath day. You're if you're Hebrew, you have extra rights in terms of being freed after six years. And they actually have embedded in the law. 
um, kind of this uh, extra um, this extra provision that said, hey, they're to go free in the seventh year, but <clears throat> if the servant declares, I love yeah. my master and I do not want to go free, then they have to take them before these third-party judges and actually get the whole thing like, approved. Hey, do you really want to do this? Yeah. Are you being coerced into totally. saying this? But they actually have a provision in the law that says, hey, if you love your master and you love your setup and you are like literally just part of the family, you never want to leave, then you can stay. You can actually go and make it a, a permanent thing. And, and so you start putting these you know, four, five, six laws together and the picture you get is something that's miles and miles away from the images that we have of the enslavement of African Americans in the Southern United States. Like we're, we're just talking about a different universe. Uh, and so I think it helps to put all of that together. So if we're ready to kind of zoom out and sum up. I think so. I, yeah, I think so. So I, I think, oh, did we forget? Did we mention Leviticus 19? Mm. I mean, God just... God just tells people, a lot of those lay the foundation, but God tells people, hey, love others as yourself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so even if you only look at that single command, he says, love others as yourself, even the foreigners living among you. Like, I don't care if they're foreigners or they're Hebrews or they're slaves or they're masters or they're free. You love them as you would love yourself. Uh, and again, we're talking about something that is is just miles away. And so... When I put all of those things together, I see the law given uh, to people who are kind of have this rebellious bent toward God. God says, hey, if you're not going to just be in relationship with me and walk in my ways, here's the deal. Here's this babysitter that's going to take care of you till the time of Christ for this specific thing. And, it, and God speaks into the issues of their day in a way that, that I think was actually achievable. And so you have these customs of... Uh, men taking multiple wives or households having slaves and servants. And m my kind of gut feeling is that it, it wouldn't necessarily work to just say, hey, throw everything out. It would have been like too radical of a jump almost. Because we, cause we, cause we're, we're always going to open the Bible and just have that gut reaction of like, wouldn't it have been a lot shorter to just say no slaves? Like, couldn't you have just made that the 11th Or couldn't commandment? you, yeah. I mean, I suppose you probably could have just gone, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You could have just left it and at one then, commandment. Then Leviticus yeah. and Deuteronomy. Just don't but, but I think when we dig a little deeper, we actually see God taking them somewhere. Not only is he babysitting them for a time, but he's taking them somewhere. He's saying, hey, you and all of these nations are at point A. If you actually take these laws to heart, we're going to move to point B and point C and point D and point E and point E. We're going to, we're going to move somewhere. We're going to progress toward more and more toward the kingdom of God. And all these other nations around you are going to see what you're doing and they're going to take notice. And they're going to know that there's this righteous God in Israel. Um, and it's going to serve this purpose. Uh, planet wide, it's going to serve this purpose. Uh, and so I don't know if you have any... Well, just my parting thoughts. thought, I mean just to bring it back to our time and place it, because we started with the point that we don't have to defend. We don't, we, we shouldn't feel the need to justify um, passages of scripture that they, we were, we take it as it is and we wrestle through it and we ask questions and all that, which is good. But to bring it back, 
because it almost sounds like we've been defending it, but, but that's not the intent. Right, right, right. The, the point where I want to land is the question comes from a great place, which is why, why would people be treated this way? Why should people be treated this way? Why would it God ever allow it? The important point, I think, as you see history develop, is who are the people who push back against structures of slavery from just a pers- purely historical perspective? What are the groups of people and who are the people who undermine that system? Was well, the church in, in the Roman Empire, where Paul starts to say things to slave masters about how they should treat their slaves and how they're one in Christ, how they should love one another, how they should mutually submit to one another. And then by the time that you get to abolition of the of chattel slavery in the 19th century, it's it's people who follow after Jesus who say, these are human beings. How can we possibly continue this? And people in the name of God did all sorts of horrible things, but it was people who were, who were motivated to follow after Christ who were the ones who finally saw the big system done away with. Now, that isn't to say that slavery doesn't exist in the world today. It does. And it's an important thing that, that followers of Jesus continue to fight against that. But... The, I want to just affirm the fact that the question comes from a, from a good perspective, which is we know this is evil and, and mistreatment of people is wrong. And God affirms that. And to come back to Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. If they're a foreigner, love them. If they're your fellow Hebrew, love them. And that, I think, should sum up and frame the way that we think these things. Yeah, so what, what I hear you saying is that as we, okay, we've examined the law a little bit. Hopefully we haven't tried to justify it or defend it too much, but rather just put it in context. Yeah. When you continue reading, th- and and here's a here's a, something to, to think about. The, the Israelites didn't follow it. Like they didn't follow the law. So, so we can sit here and say, well, shouldn't God have given them a harder law to follow? And if there was an ancient Hebrew in the room, he'd be flipping the table over. He'd be like, we can't even, we can't even do what God's asking us to do right now. What's the point of making it two or three times harder to follow? You really think we're going to be able to do that. Um, and so it's not really until Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit that you see these like transformed hearts and people who are really able to, to walk more fully in what God has. God empowers them. Yeah. yeah, God empowers them. But the other thing that's worth noting is that by the time you hit the New Testament— you get Jesus and you get Paul, excuse me, sowing the seeds yes. that are going to bring down that system. Yeah. Uh, it, it's this subversive, almost undermining movement uh, that's going to spread uncontainably across the Roman Empire and bring down slavery. And as you look through the centuries, you get these groups of Jesus followers who are there uh, to undermine this system. And of course, you have um, kind of these like grotesque, examples on the other end where you have um, slave masters in the southern united states who were actually giving christianity to their slaves opening up the bible and pointing at the very things that, that you guys texted in questions about and saying well look right here guys we got laws right here about sla-. and even in the new testament hey slaves you know obey your masters why don't why don't you guys get on board with this uh, not realizing 
that they they weren't that they were giving their slaves more than they bargained for that these slaves were actually coming to Christ opening up the bible uh, and becoming way better followers of Jesus than their masters ever were uh, and actually opening up the bible before you get to the law you get exodus mm-hmm. which is the god of the universe listening to slaves who are crying out in their affliction and coming to radically set them free and, and so if you're a slave, you're actually opening the Bible and saying, I love this God. This is the God who sets people free, who, who cares about our freedom, who, who cares about the widow and the orphan and the oppressed and who hears us when we pray and cry out to him. And so then you have these all of these African-American slaves who are becoming passionate followers of Jesus when their masters were trying to introduce something out of manipulation. Mm-hmm. Power of the gospel power of the gospel um, and that's ultimately what a ton of people see when they open the scriptures is this god who who's actually out to set people free so um anything else before we close karshi mm. may the grace of our lord jesus christ the love of god and the fellowship of the holy spirit be with us all evermore amen amen until next time again for listening to the Q&A podcast. If you have questions you'd like answered, text in your question to 208-503-3865.